You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. I think it's, it's fair to say that, that everyone in the room who, who has entertained the idea that God might exist has wondered in a moment of vulnerability and honesty, does God really love me? Right? Like, if he exists, does he love me? And I think to get at the core of, of that question and, and what it means, it's helpful to look at human relationships. And so just to imagine, and for many of you it won't be hard to imagine, but imagine that you feel like you're in a season or a state that's covered by darkness, whether because of sadness or fear or sickness or, or, or some other sort of turmoil in your life. And in a time like this, the people who love you will probably feel compelled to do certain things for you. Some of them will send you a card or a text. Some will go as far as, as to actually pick up the phone and call you and let, let you hear their voice. Or, or maybe they'll send you flowers or a meal or, or some sort of gift to show their affection. They'll tell you things like that they're thinking for, of you and they're praying for you. And, and all of these things will, will communicate to you that these people love you. But in those moments of real desperate need, for, for most of us, unfortunately not for all of us, but for most of us, you'll end up being joined in person by your father or your mother or your spouse or a sibling, or a, or a dear friend, someone who will come and enter into the darkness with you, who will sit with you and cry, who will help you make meals when you lack the energy to do so. And these are the relationships which you would say communicate the highest amount of human love, those people who will embody darkness with you. And for thousands of years, God has given himself to his people. He made promises, he performed miracles, he forgave their sins, he taught them how to truly live, and when they were in need, he heard them and he came to their rescue. Just read Exodus chapter 1. God's love for his people was always better than, than a meal sent, though he did provide food for his people when they were in need. It was always better than a card, because God wrote everlasting promises and covenants. He inscribed them on stone. His love has always been better than flowers. In fact, he gave his people gardens and rivers and trees for fruit and, and beasts of the field to eat and to, to gather. His love has always been better than prayers because he's the one who has actually heard and answered the prayers. He separated waters. He saved people from their enemies. He shut the mouths of lions. But eventually, God's love manifested so greatly that, that it even puts our most prized human relationships to shame. It says in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So in, in the need and in the darkness of humanity, God 
came and embodied it. The word, the thoughts, the entirety of God's love and his majesty for his people took on flesh and came down to be with them, to join us in our sorrow, to take the burdens that we carry upon himself. This is the love of God. The incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man, this is the ultimate expression of God's love for his people. That all of God's words, all of his promises, all of his affection for his people would become embodied in the human person. This is the kind of love that acts when words take on flesh. So if you've wondered, does God love you? The answer is unequivocally, yes, he does. He has embodied love. He has come and come to sit with you in your need. The, the poet John Donne said so beautifully, he says, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. God came down to be our king. He came down to take up our likeness, took on a human body that pumped human blood in a human heart and, and lived um, among men. And, and guess what? He still embodies it. Right? He's still embodied as a human in the heavenly places. The creed says that Jesus Christ came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. We're, we're not going to spend much time on the virgin birth this morning, frankly, because it's a whole sermon, and, and I'd be glad to send some resources on Slack, um, but we're, just, we're not going to do that mainly because of time. Um, but what we do need to know is that the eternal Son of God fully robed in all of his divinity and power and eternality, became a man. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He has come down from heaven. The, the creed begins the statement, as I just read, with this. It says, who for us men and for our salvation. So Jesus came down to become a man for us men, meaning mankind, not meaning specifically gendered men. It, we, we discuss, we've discussed in the last few weeks the necessity of God coming down for us, that, that in order to have a relationship with God, he would have to come down because there was no way we could ascend to him. We, we needed a, a man who would do the work of Adam to be obedient and fruitful and righteous and faithful and fully good in all the ways that God intended and designed for us to be. This was the work of God in Christ to save us from Satan's sin and death, to become a man. But the language of for us men, before and for our salvation, is important. God, God didn't just come down to accomplish a mechanical function of salvation. He came down for us. He came down for us. In love, God came down for us, for our good, to comfort us, to be with us, to be intimately connected with us. And if you read the Old Testament, the, the scriptures written before the life of Christ, you won't really be surprised when you find out that God comes down to live as a man. Because God has always loved his people ferociously and jealously. His love has always been self-renouncing. It's always been the sort of love that enters into the situation that his people are encountering. And so it finally manifests 
fully in the incarnation. But the incarnation was hinted at before. Even in the Garden of Eden, right? As soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, as soon as sin entered the world, what, what happens in Genesis? Adam and Eve heard something. They heard God walking in the garden. They had disobeyed. They had rebelled against God. They had condemned themselves to death, which God had promised. And, and what happens? God came down to see them. He came down to be with them, to speak to them, to make promises to them, to make a sacrifice for them, to cover their shame. So the incarnation shouldn't surprise us at all. It's always been the way God acts toward his people in their need. This is why in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's walking with some disciples along the road, it says that he looks at all the scriptures, right, referring to the Old Testament, and he teaches them how they're about him. The reason the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus is because this isn't a surprise for God to be this sort of way. Like It's always been about incarnate, self-renouncing love of God for the sake of his people, and Jesus is the capstone of it. The incarnation is it's the most glorious outpouring of God's self-renouncing love because in it, God trades heavenly glory for earthly shame. He trades immortality for a body that is meant to be broken and killed. He trades power and might for suffering and deference and humility. Last week, we talked about how in Jesus being fully God, the fullness of God's Love and promises were made accessible to man, right? This is because God became incarnate. He made the things of God available to man. All the beauty and forgiveness and love of God is now available to us because God became a man. The barrier between imperfect creature and perfect creator has been beautifully broken through the incarnation. But the humanity of Jesus, is it's important for us not just because of these theological implications. It's not only important, though it is very important, but it's not only important because now the things of God are available to us. It's important practically and pastorally that the King of the universe, the Savior and Lord of all, is a man. It's important to us that there's a human sitting on the throne in heaven. Here's why. Here's just one reason why. Have you ever felt hopeless or, or, or stuck? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever been tempted towards sin? Have you ever felt misunderstood by others? Have you ever been heartbroken? Have you ever mourned? Have you ever been betrayed or left behind by those that you were counting on? Have you ever been in immense physical pain and suffering? Have you ever feared death? Have you ever been anxious? Have you ever had people place expectations on you that felt way too weighty for you to bear? Have you ever been disappointed by the people that you love? Have you ever known the feeling of being tired and far from home? Have you ever been ridiculed for the things that you believe or hated for the things that you've spoken? Have you ever wondered where you would get your next meal or if your body would survive an ailment you're enduring? You all said yes to at least one of those. 
Like, all of us have been in a situation like that. And now consider, would you think that an eternal, transcendent God who's created everything, who's powerful over everything, would care in those moments? And if you think maybe he would care, do you think he would understand? And even if you think maybe he would care and understand, do you actually think he would know what you're going through? Would you feel confident going to a God like that in those moments of need and vulnerability? Would you feel the intimate proximity of that kind of God towards you in the moment when you need him most? Now, the answer is you could, right? If you read the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the Bible, all written before the incarnation of God, what you see is that God's people prayed those kinds of prayers to God. They went to Him in these moments of vulnerability, of sorrow and anxiety and fear and doubt and sickness, and God heard them and loved them and cared for them and met their needs. So maybe the answer to these questions would be yes, like I I could go to a God like that, but But to be sure, there is a comfort in knowing that the person you are going to in a moment of need not only understands what you're going through, but has experienced what you're going through. Right? Like all of us have felt that sense of comfort when we've found someone who's actually lived what we have lived. And the good news for us is that God does know. He knows full and well what we're going through in these moments of weakness because he's lived as a man and he rules in heaven presently. And so he is a human representative in the Godhead. Hebrews chapter 4 says it like this. It says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hear this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So God is not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. God knows you. He understands you, not only with divine empathy, but with perfect human sympathy. This is the sort of king to whose throne we can draw near with confidence. Because this king loves us and he understands us. He knows our needs and our fears. And Romans 8 tells us that Jesus is at every moment interceding on our behalf at all time in the presence of the Father. So when we pray to him, it's going through a human to get to the Father. A human who's saying, I've felt the way she feels. I've been in a situation like that. Let us show her mercy. Let us show her grace. So sure, God could have handled all of, all of those moments for us apart from the incarnation. But it's far better and it's far more comforting to, to know that we have a God who not only understands, but who's lived it. Hebrews 8 talks about how the covenant Christ has established is far greater than the Old Covenant, which, by the way, is great. It's far greater because it's established on better promises and it has a better priest than Jesus. So we can go to a God who has been a helpless child, 
a God who has been a mourning friend, a God who has actually been a poor vagabond, an awkward teenager, and a misunderstood prisoner. We can go to a God who's been those things, not only who understands those things. We can go to a God who has wept, who has sweat, who has bled, who has slept, who has prayed desperately and fearfully, who has worked long days, and who has felt the sting of betrayal from his closest friend. You can go to a God like that. Because a human king reigns on the throne in heaven. And this king, he desires to give us fullness of life, to make us free from our sin. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Maybe the most profound beauty of all in regards to Jesus being God and man is that his love is expressed and that he gives his flesh to us. If you read the New Testament, you'll see that the apostles, particularly Paul, Talk about the, the human flesh, the sinful flesh as being the source of all of our spiritual ailments, right? Like it's within our flesh that death reigns, that sin is perpetuated, that rebellion resides. And so it's our flesh which is a problem, like this, this flesh that we inherited from our father Adam that makes us prone toward death and sin and rebellion and struggle and uncertainty. Our flesh is our imperfection. But God has taken on flesh so that we can consume His flesh and be changed. So that our bodies can be transformed from sinful and broken to righteous and glorious. So the incarnation of God is the love of God expressed, as Jesus says, for the life of the world. We have new life and fullness of life because God has taken His flesh and he's given it to us as true food. He's taken his blood, and he's given it to us as true drink. The humanity of Jesus then becomes the object and material necessity of our hope. We rely upon Jesus' flesh because our flesh is weak. Ours is dying and sinful. We rely on Jesus' blood because our blood proclaims our sin and our violence and our guilt at every moment. But his flesh was broken for our transgression, and his blood was poured out to constantly plead and establish a covenant of unending grace and forgiveness toward his people. His blood was poured out for this. The physical body of Jesus allows our physical bodies to become instruments of divine glory. Right? Like, your body because God became a man, can now become the kind of body that does glorious things, though weak. We can be instruments of divine glory and relentless love, meaning that, that now, because God has become a man, we are free to obey God's commandments because we've been given better flesh. We, we've been given flesh that can obey, flesh that can persevere flesh that can resist. Our bodies and our minds are being renewed by, by the Spirit of God, 
but also by the body and mind that Christ has given to us. If God has come down to be with us in our need, if, if he's given himself up for us fully, if he's allowed his body to be put on the line to express his love for us, then, then that means that we now can also live that kind of life for others. Like we can give ourselves up for others because God has truly given himself up for us. It's not just a moral platitude to which we are a, 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 like aspiring. It's a reality which God has modeled for us in the body of Christ. So that means we can actually sit with the mourning, care for the sick, and inhabit the sorrow of our neighbors all for the purpose of redeeming love without this feeling like an impossible thing to attain. It's actually a reality that Christ has invited us into because he's modeled it for us first. We sing a hymn that I love, There is a fountain filled with blood. And there's a verse that says this, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. The flowing wounds coming from the physical body of Jesus allow us to live lives of redeeming love until we die. Our lives can be marked by redeeming love because God has exercised redeeming love on our behalf through the blood of Jesus. This leads us to the final portion of the creed that I want to address. It says, And he shall come again with glory, to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. One day, Jesus Christ, our human and divine king, will return. He's going to come back. That's good news. He's going to be robed in glory, and he's going to have a task that might sound like not good news, and that's judgment. He will judge all of us according to our works. Romans 2 says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who have, by patience, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul tells us that the judgment will go well for all who have loved his appearing. Right For all who have delighted in the fact that God has come down, judgment will go well. The, elsewhere, the scriptures say that all who believe in Christ as King, as Lord and Savior, they will be saved in that day of judgment. They will be given eternal life. And so here's the deal. God is going to judge us. He's going to judge us all. But the person of the Godhead who has been entrusted with this judgment is the human person. Like That's good news. This is a beautiful mercy of God that we will surely all be terrified in that day when we come before the throne of God to be judged for our lives and for our works. But God's mercy is that we will be looking eye to eye with the man. We will be judged by our human hearts and what's inside them, but we'll be judged by a human who has a heart like ours meaning he will be well-equipped for the task, for looking into our hearts and knowing whether or not we have treasured him, trusted him, and sought after his kingdom. That's good news, but it's also fearful news, right? There's no deceiving this kind of judge. Like We're not going to slip one past him in that day. But 
He will also not misunderstand us. If our hearts are set on Him, if our hope is in Him, if we have entrusted in Him, that in that day He will see and He will know and He will understand because His heart will be like our heart and He will judge us faithfully and fairly. He will know whether or not we've treasured Him, trusted Him, and sought after His kingdom or whether we have sought out other kingdoms, found joy in lesser gods, or have trusted a different gospel. But considering all that we've talked about today, what gospel could we trust that would rise above the story of a perfect God who has come down to be a man in order to be with us, to show love toward us, to die on our behalf, to to perfectly give himself for an imperfect people, to make them his treasure and his family and his joy and his inheritance forever. If you find better news than one of total forgiveness, everlasting life, and union with the creator of the cosmos, then I would encourage you to believe that news and tell it to me. But you won't. You will not. The definitive good news has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. One day, he will allow you, like he did Thomas, to see his wounds. His wounds in his human skin that he acquired to save you. But until then, he gives us his flesh and his blood every week as food and drink that we might ever be sustained and nourished both in soul and in body to be transformed, to be like a body like his. So let's pray and let's come to the table. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've come down, that you have truly come down to meet us and to save us that there is nothing that we experience in this life with which you are unacquainted. No grief, no sorrow, no fear or anxiety that that isn't something you can sympathize with, that you can understand, that you live a life of, of immense suffering and torment so that there was never a person who would be grafted into your fold that you wouldn't understand and recognize. Would we find deep comfort in your incarnation this morning? Would we be spurred then to live lives of redeeming love, of sacrificial love, of real obedience because you've gone before us and done it and you're inviting us to follow you? That it's not this yoke of of an unbearable weight of obedience, but that it's the invitation of an older brother who's gone before us. Pray this morning as we come to your table that we would experience the mysterious beauty of your body and your blood being given to us. That we would feel changed, that we would feel nourished, that the fullness of your presence would would come in in such a way that, that we won't be the same when we leave, but that we will be ready for the work you've given us. Whatever sins we walked in with, whatever, whatever doubts we walked in with, Lord, would you... Would you remove those as we come to your table? As we plead that your body and your blood are our only hope. It's in his name.